The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. That was Joe Biden reassuring Americans that the banking system is safe just days after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The demise of that lender and the panic it has spread globally is the focus of this week's Views Room. Welcome back to the Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. A week can sometimes feel like a year in financial markets, and that's certainly the case over the past seven days. It all started with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last Friday, but far from being contained by assurances from the US government, concerns over what weaknesses lie in the global banking system have been spreading across the globe. Here to try and untangle the situation and offer some insight into whether investor jitters are warranted is our crack team of financial gurus, John Foley, our global financial editor, Liam Proud, who covers banks in Europe, and Peter Tal Larson, our global head of Breaking Views. So welcome, Peter, John, and Liam. Hi, Amy. You guys all probably need a big rest after this week, but whether you'll get it or not is another question. John, if we could start with you, just a really kind of fascinating situation started last Friday, Silicon Valley Bank. Can you tell us what Silicon Valley Bank is and what was its undoing? What led to its demise? Yeah, and in fact, Amy, it started earlier than that because the first bank that got into trouble was a bank called Silvergate. Um, which we, has already seemed so long ago that we've all forgotten about it. But it was a bank that basically served the crypto industry. Um, and all three of the banks that have now basically died, Silvergate, Silicon Valley and Signature Bank, all starting with S, and all served the tech space mostly. Um, they, the, At least Silvergate and Silicon Valley had the same problem, which was that depositors, who are largely tech companies or in Silvergate's case, crypto firms, started to rip out their deposits. They needed their cash back for various reasons, one possibly being just that the economy is tightening and startups are finding it hard to get hold of money. And as they did that, uh, the banks had to sell bonds that they held on their balance sheet, but they had to do so at a loss. Um, And in in Silicon Valley's case, that was because the bonds were on its balance sheet at a different price effectively from what it knew it would get if it tried to sell them in the market. So when it sold those bonds, it created a loss which created kind of a hole in its balance sheet, basically, which it tried to fill with the help of Goldman Sachs and failed. And so on Friday night, the regulators came in and said, this is enough. They seized it. They Over the weekend, they seized Signature Bank 2. Silvergate kind of voluntarily closed its doors. And so now for in, we have the first bank failures in almost three years, and people are kind of scrambling to find out what happens next, because previously um, we were laboring under the impression, at least for sort of 36 months or so that banks no longer were able to fail and it turns out that was very wrong. Yes and and Peter obviously the US banking system is is very different to Europe but this has been spreading across these kind of these jitters or this kind of I guess in some cases a bit of panic about where where the next weakness is what's the next you know bank to go what have you seen over the past few days just in terms of what's been happening with the European banks and and, and the investors and the way they're behaving? Well, I think, I mean, just to start with with what happened in the US, uh, I mean, as John said, 
um, highlighted a couple of issues. One is that, that these banks had, were sitting on large portfolios of bonds, which which they could sell, but only at a loss. Um, so that created a, a, a bit of a risk. And the other thing was that they had lots of deposits. And, and in Silicon Valley Bank's case, particularly, they had lots of deposits which were above the federally insured limit of $250,000. And so, so basically, those depositors, when they saw what was happening, started pulling their money out. And that then, you know, it's a classic, classic bank run. And what the US government did was basically say, okay, well, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank Visa, these, these problems are, uh, pose a risk to the financial system. And so therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to say, no matter what happens, the, ins- the, the deposits of these banks in their entirety are guaranteed. Um, so that's quite a big step to take. Um, and uh, obviously has lots of implications for other banks uh, in the US. And so so that's th- those are really sort of the, the the, the things that people have been focused on. And so if you then translate that across to Europe, actually the situation in Europe is very different um, uh, in the sense that you don't have quite the same kind of buildup of, of bond portfolios, which, 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 are then tr- which are then sort of show a loss on a mark-to-market basis. Um, but obviously you do in Europe still have the problem, which is that there isn't a single joined up uh, uh, banking regulation. Um, uh, there are still questions about the deposit insurance schemes and whether they're backstopped and whether they're whether they're supported by governments that themselves are in a weak financial position. So that all adds to the jitters. And then I think basically what happens is is in these situations is also people tend to pick on uh, or focus on the banks that are already weak. Um, and so uh, that is why I think, you know, obviously all bank stocks in Europe sort of took a bit of a beating on the, as a result of this, um, but particularly people focused on credit squeeze. One other thing I would say is that the other thing that's happened, and, and again, this is on both sides of the Atlantic, is, is markets adjusted their expectations of what was going to happen to interest rates. Um, there was an assumption that both the Fed and the ECB would look at this financial turmoil and say, this is not a moment to be raising interest rates. And so when you and if you expect lower interest rates in the future, that also affects how much money banks are going to make uh, uh, on their loans. And so there's also been a question a bit over the sort of the future profitability of these banks. Absolutely. And and Liam, Credit Suisse is a bank you you know very well at this stage. We've talked about it on this program before. Why why Credit Suisse? Why why the focus on on them? And as I I just said, it was it was a it was quite dramatic what what ended up happening over the past twenty four hours with Credit Suisse, given they seem to be in a in a perfectly solvent situation. Yeah, as you said, it's really it's really quite extraordinary, actually. Why Credit Suisse? I mean, they're they're a pretty weak bank in the sense that they have made massive losses in recent years, and they've had kind of they've slipped on every banana skin on the street repeatedly, um, and they're going through this incredibly complicated restructuring program. Um, and more more saliently, they did see a load of outflows of assets and deposits at the end of 2022. So you kind of have this dynamic where you'd say, you know, well, what happened with the U.S. banks? You know, Silicon Valley saw a run on its deposits. There's no particular reason to think that you might lose money in Credit Suisse. I mean, on a kind of fundamental basis, it has a lot of high quality assets. It's kind of, you know, it seems seems pretty liquid on the asset side. But 
it kind of becomes self-fulfilling, right? And and that already happened with Credit Suisse in October, based on essentially nothing. People pulled 120 billion of money from the wealth business and the asset management business. So if you're seeing bank runs, then a company that has recently seen a mini bank run is, is probably the most vulnerable. And so tell us then, so then the Swiss central bank then essentially sort of intervened yesterday as the share price collapsed kind of basically nearly, what was it? It was in the 20s, basically, how much had been wiped off the share price yesterday. Um, that seemed like, again, a quite a dramatic thing to happen, to, sort of to what Peter was talking about with the the kind of intervention of, of regulators. What What is the significance of the Swiss central bank and, and what it did? So what they're trying to do is to say there's no reason to pull money from this bank because it has loads of liquidity. And you know it has loads of liquidity because we're going to lend it 50 billion Swiss francs against its assets. So you don't need to panic. Now, I worry that actually that just says, you know, you've got a window to take your assets out. Um, You know, here's a kind of invitation. You know, they can they can pay you back. So I don't I don't think it's guaranteed that this stops the rot. But that's definitely the intention. I mean, there's quite a confusing message if you think about it. They're saying we're borrowing 50 billion, but we don't need it. You're sort of you're kind of left a little bit unsure how to take that, um, you know. But I do I do think it's it's worked in the sense that it stopped the the self-reinforcing spiral of like the falling share price and the falling debt um, costs, uh, sorry, rising debt costs, and kind of you have this horrible spiral taking hold. So. Um, but I think I think the point the other point to make about the SMB, which is the Swiss National Bank intervention here, is that it's it, it really feels like a stopgap to me. I mean, they can't kind of limp along like this. I mean, it, I don't know that it's really possible, given this this lo- loss of confidence and this potential loss of assets for Credit Suisse to return its cost of equity anytime soon. So it's it's kind of a question of, you know, can the authorities kind of risk another market route on the bank? I mean, it did seem to infect the rest of the sector a little bit. So I kind of feel like the story is not over. Absolutely. Uh, Peter, again, just to kind of to think about everything that's happened over the past week and the implications of it, what do you think are the implications of, of as you said, like the, the US has guaranteed deposits way above the, the limit that they had you know, that previously been agreed, like following the last financial crisis, there were rules set set in place for how banks would die, how, who was, who was on the hook and who wasn't. That all seems to be sort of upended in the past week. What are your, what are your thoughts on, on the implications of all of this? Well, I think we've realised a couple of things. I mean, one is that um, uh, the too big to fail problem, which was sort of identified 15 years ago um, as as having these very big banks that couldn't be allowed to be allowed to fail and therefore needed to be bailed out. There's been a lot of regulation, a lot of focus in terms of making those big banks safer. uh, And also, as you said, enabling, making it possible for them to be wound down if they get into trouble. Um, But I think what we've realized this week is that actually uh, even smaller banks may be too big to fail at certain points. So Silicon Valley Bank, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was was I think a quarter of the size in terms of its sorry half the size of Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns was one of the first to almost fail in 2008, got bailed out by J.P. Morgan. Silicon Valley Bank was half the size in terms of balance sheet and a much simpler business. But yet, when they came to the crunch, you know they couldn't just they couldn't just wind it down in 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 the normal way. They had to protect the depositors. So I think that's the first thing, and that has implications for how these banks are regulated and and how how what kind of buffers you put in place. Um, 
I do think the other thing, though, is, and then there is obviously this question about deposits. There is an assumption that deposits are insured up to a certain level, but above that, you're on your own. Again, does that in this in this world are we maybe saying that actually even uninsured deposits have to be guaranteed, and that would have implications for how banks are regulated? And then I think the third big question, which goes back to some of the things that Liam was mentioning, is just are we in a different world? in terms of how quickly money can move out of banks when there's a problem or a perceived problem. Uh, I mean, I think Silicon Valley banks lost something like $40 billion of deposit in a, de in a day. Credit Suisse lost, you know, 100 billion Swiss francs or whatever the number is in a couple of weeks on the basis of, of really rumors that didn't really have any basis in fact. So th there is something about how we're now in this world with sort of always on 24 seven banking. You can move large amounts of money around with, with a couple of clicks on your phone. Um, the social media, which, which which spreads rumors. So maybe we just have to think about bank deposits as being not particularly sticky and actually quite quite risky when it when it comes to when, when banks get into trouble. Absolutely. I mean, John, if I could just bring in just for, for one last question. I mean, the 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 idea as well about the interest rates rising and how that that sort of caused problems in the bond market, which then created issues for banks, but then. There's a now talk about them not being raised as fast. I mean, what are your kind of thoughts on all of that? I mean, does this does this now make the central banks rethink how they're going to tackle inflation? Is that is that something you think is likely? Well, this was one of the things that um, investors seem to be thinking as all this um, played out was that the Federal Reserve, which has been getting tough on very tough on inflation in the US, would maybe soften its position and as peter said earlier market prices started adjusting according to that but um i mean we we've argued that there is a strong case and i still think there is a strong case for not changing the course of monetary policy and the reason is that inflation is still high in the us like we're still facing it's it's softening a little bit but it's six percent inflation and the official target is two and bank runs are bad and uh, there's no there's no denying that, but inflation is also really bad, and inflation is really bad for everybody, especially for lower income households. So the Fed has to have a really good reason to start tolerating higher inflation um, if if the you know the cause of that is failing banks. And what they've done instead, what the Fed has actually done, which is quite clever, is they've opened up um, a kind of facility, if you like, where banks can take bonds that have fallen in value and they can borrow against them from the Fed as if they hadn't fallen in value. And this kind of means that as the Fed continues to raise rates, the stuff that these banks have on the balance sheet doesn't keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and leaving with a problem. In theory, they can go to the Fed and act as if interest rates haven't risen at all when it comes to borrowing against those assets. So that might give them a license to keep raising rates. But I really think they have to. I just think to throw you know, tens of millions of Americans who are struggling to make ends meet under the bus to save banks that basically served wealthy Silicon Valley tech bros would be completely unacceptable politically and morally. Wow, very interesting. Many questions raised. Um, so fascinating. Well, look, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Liam. And thank you, John. Thanks, Thanks Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Newsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. <laughs>